Glad to have you guys. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. Um, for those of you who are new, just a, a little bit of a, a precursor to where we're going this morning. Uh, you've come in in week three of what I would consider is one of the most critical series that we've ever gone through as a church. And, and so I'm going to do my best to, to recap so that no one's flying blind this morning, so to speak. But, uh, but I would encourage everyone in this room, uh, for whatever reason might draw you out of this auditorium on any given Sunday throughout the course of January 2017, whether it's sickness, vacation, um, you're working maybe in the kids' wing one Sunday, that if you miss a sermon at any given point in this series, that you would go back and engage that. Um, I hope that you are starting to semi-become annoyed with my emails. I've, I've sent one a week so far with links to the sermons uh, leading up to this point because I really do believe that it's, it's critical. This is a train of thought that we're tracing from start to finish in this series. And so it's imperative that we all engage from start to finish. And so if this is your first Sunday, again, I would encourage you to go back, go to the website this week and check out the first couple of messages in this series. But again, I'll give you some sense of a brief recap that I hope will whet your appetite for where we're going this week. I said this in week one and I'll say it again. If there was a time that I could ask the, the church at large to commit to listening to every message in a series and know that the church at large would respond with an emphatic yes, this is the series that I would choose. We launched this series a couple weeks ago, The Everyday Gospel, and with a title like that, uh, I thought it was critical that we get off on the right foot, assuming the gospel is the first step on the path toward abandoning the gospel, and so rather than assume that we're all on the same page as it pertains to what we mean when we use that word gospel, my intention a couple weeks ago was to present what I hope was a, a clear, explicit declaration of the gospel, most certainly not an exhaustive comprehensing unpacking of the gospel, as we'll see this morning, but what I hope was at least a clear foundational layout of this divine, redemptive, historical drama that you and I get to be a part of by God's grace. But the goal of week one was not just to present an articulation of the gospel, though that is critically important, but also to argue for the necessity of the gospel in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life, hence the title, The Everyday Gospel. Not just the Sunday gospel, as we'll see in just a moment. The gospel that matters when you leave this place today. The gospel that'll matter when you roll out of bed tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day and the next day. Part of the purpose of this series is that I have this deep concern in this culturally Christian context in which we live. That there are droves of people walking through life who really do love Jesus, make no mistake, but are living without any real understanding of what it means to experience the power of the gospel in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life, a present tense gospel that matters for you in the here and now. According to the Apostle Paul, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, the gospel is not simply the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity to be abandoned for bigger and better things once we're converted, once we're in the fast lane, so to speak. Rather, according to the Apostle Paul, the gospel is meant to have a strengthening effect on the Christian. Romans 16, 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ. That word strengthen carries with it this idea of being firmly established or solidly planted um, like a tree with roots that run deeper and deeper over the course of time so that you're not swayed to and fro by anything and everything that comes your way in life. For the past two weeks, I've cast a vision that sounds something like this. 
See if this resonates with you. What if, what if you could go about your life so confident in God, so caught up in the wonder of what it means to be a son or daughter of the king, so saturated in the glorious truth of, of who he is for you, what he promises to you, and, and what he uh, will promise you in terms of future tense. What if you could get so wrapped up in those things that the things that cause your heart to wander begin to lose their power? That the clawing after approval, control, power, and comfort begins to lose its significance. That the struggles with guilt and fear and shame, things that are real struggles for many of us in this room, begin to lose their crippling effect on your heart. Wouldn't that be glorious? That's what this series is all about. We're talking about a Christianity that has some lifeblood in it. We're talking about hearts awakened to the beauty of the gospel in a way that are to an extent that they never have been before, arguably. How does that happen? I've been saying it for a couple weeks now. It happens by breathing the air of the gospel in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. Again, if that phrase sounds like it's up in the clouds, just stick around. Continue to plow your way through this series with us, and it'll continue, I hope, to make more sense. See, the Apostle Paul understood that that the propensity of the human heart is to wander off the gospel path. He knew that because our hearts are fickle, we need to be reminded of the gospel often, moment by moment, like our next breath of air. Last week, we, we talked about where that proneness to wander off the gospel path comes from, namely the flesh, the devil, and the world. So we spent some time unpacking those things, and you really can mix those three things into what I would call a, a unique gospel, uh, anti-gospel cocktail of sorts. And, and it looks different every day as we, as we get up and we engage the world as we know it, as those three things come together in, in unique ways. First, there's the flesh. There's a, a proneness to wander from the gospel that exists within. And it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. We all have a unique sin nature. This room is is filled with a variety of root idols and vices and nuanced struggles with doubt and unbelief. Some in this room struggle greatly, we talked about this last week, with self-righteousness, with reverting back to thinking that, that we have to earn God's love, that it's Jesus plus whatever we bring to the table. Others in this room struggle greatly with self-loathing, with struggling to believe that Jesus could really die for your sin thinking that you're the limit on the power of his blood. The struggle comes from within in a variety of, uh, of forms, variety of shapes and sizes. If we're going to be strengthened by the gospel, if we're going to find ourselves more firmly established, more solidly planted, more deeply rooted, as Paul says, then we're going to have to be willing to stare in the mirror long enough to get a glimpse of what that proneness to wander looks like for us uniquely. And that was what much of last week was about. And I'm not just talking visible manifestations of sin that we can see above the surface in our lives, but also what's going on in the deep recesses of our hearts, what's driving us to to do those things that are visible. If you don't know yourself, if you don't have some semblance of what that proneness to wonder looks like for you, then you're far less likely to experience the power of the gospel in your life. And so I asked this last week, do you know yourself? Are you willing to get to know yourself better if it means that you just might experience a Christianity that has a little more lifeblood in it? Again, this church exists to help with that. It's part of our DNA. It's part of what we're after in our community groups, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. Second, there's the devil. According to the Apostle Paul, it's not just uh, you and I who are 
uh, enemies of our own joy as it pertains to our sin nature. The devil and his minions are on an unrelenting mission to draw us off the gospel path to keep those roots from going deeper and deeper in our lives. In the same way that our our wandering hearts believe things that are not centered on the gospel, so the devil and his demon army love to whisper things in our ears that are not centered on the gospel, to do whatever they can to get us to believe in some alternate narrative, some sort of anti-gospel, you might say. And to be sure, the father of lies strategizes against each of us uniquely. Again, go read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, and you'll see how all that works. His attacks are, are form-fitted for each of our individual doubts and fears. He knows what he's doing, which is why it's so critical that we do the homework on ourselves, that we get a better understanding of our own sin nature, of what lies within. Satan uses that against us. He's not out to reinvent the wheel. Our, our fickle hearts give him plenty of material to work with. Now add to the mix, on top of our fickle hearts and the devil of hell, the world itself the trends of culture and society that present us with an opportunity to veer off the gospel path at any given time. The things that you and I come face to face with simply as a result of the day and age in which we find ourselves, as a result of the various environments in, in which we live and breathe, the movies we watch, the songs we listen to, the TV shows we engage, the social media posts that find their way in front of our eyes, the commercials that promise to rescue us from our personal hell by offering us a functional savior at any given moment. Products, services, work environments, experiences in life, all these things present an opportunity to veer from the gospel path or to be strengthened by the gospel. Now take all three of these things, the flesh, the devil, and the world, and you begin to see how much gospel air you really need to breathe to have a rootedness in, in Jesus Christ, right? So that you're not swayed to and fro by anything and everything that comes your way, both within and external to you. You begin to see that a, a, par, a compartmentalized Christianity that's alive and well on Sunday but dead every other day just won't work. God never, God never intended for us to come into a place like this once a week to take a big gulp of gospel air and then to walk out only to take our next breath seven days later. That's not how God designed Christianity to work. In any given moment, you and I are going to believe something. The question is whether it will be the gospel or that competing narrative, that, that anti-gospel that presents itself as, as we venture out into the world day in and day out. And so this week, my hope is to connect the dots in a way that shows how the gospel offers hope in the midst of, of our unique battles with sin, with doubt, with unbelief, spiritual warfare, and, and on and on we could go. Again, though many of us have similar struggles in life, ultimately we're all unique individuals with not just a unique fingerprint, but, but a deeply unique need for the gospel. And so let's, let's unearth that this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the Seats in the row in front of you, you can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, take that. The church's gift to you. We'd love for you to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own. Let me just read this morning's passage and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let me pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would create dozens and dozens of gospel awakenings. That you would cause dozens and dozens of gospel light bulbs to go off, so to speak. uh, That we would find ourselves seeing the dots connected in a unique way that perhaps we never have before. That we would see the unique nature of our proneness to wander off the gospel path going back to last week. And that we would see the beauty of the gospel as it is meant to uniquely shine into our lives. God, would you... Would you change us? Would you shape us? Would you cause those roots of the gospel to go even deeper in our lives this morning for your glory and our joy? Lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Without getting too knee-deep in the weeds, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has, has made a plan to visit the church in Corinth. Uh, on his way to and from a particular missionary journey that he's on. But, but something comes up that gets in the way of that plan. And the people of Corinth, if you've, if you've read about them, uh, they're, they're not necessarily the poster child for the church, right? Um, and so they begin to question whether Paul's heart is divided. Does Paul really care about us? Is Paul really, is he really for us? And Paul's answer in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is a resounding yes. Yes, I'm for your joy. Yes, I'm for your peace. Yes, I'm for your holiness, and so forth and so on. And he basically argues that he, the apostle Paul, is for them because Jesus is for them. In fact, every promise that offers us peace, every promise that offers us hope, every promise that offers us joy in the midst of the battle is ours because of Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. Do you catch the comprehensive nature of that kind of a statement? All of the promises of God, all, every promise that God has ever made, when you read the scriptures from start to finish, every promise that's ever been declared by God, the certainty of every one of those promises, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, is rooted in Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. The cross, I've mentioned this before, has been described as the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's multifaceted. As you turn a jewel, it's meant to shine with with a different radiance, with a different beauty and brilliance as you spin it. So with the cross of Christ, you have these various facets. Jesus saves us from the, the wrath of God by absorbing God's wrath in our place. Jesus saves us from sin's curse by becoming a curse for us. Jesus saves us from sin's shame by being shamed in our place. Jesus saves us from sin's guilt by being pronounced guilty in our place in God's cosmic courtroom. And on and on we could go, and on and on we will go this morning. But, but let me stop for a second, and, and let me throw out what I think is, is a deeply profound question. Okay, I, I think that we could all agree that the next physical breath of air that we will take in a few seconds from now is critical. Right? We, we don't even think about it oftentimes because we don't feel threatened that it's not going to be there. Right? But what if it were? What if it were threatened? You think it would be at the forefront of our minds in that moment? I think so. And so here's my question. Knowing that our rootedness in the gospel is always being threatened in unique ways, day in and day out, are any of the promises that find their yes in Jesus as important to you, as significant to you, 
as the next physical breath of air that you'll breathe? I think that's a critical question. Going back to last week, that's a difficult question to answer if you don't know what the threat looks like, if you don't know what the propensity to wander off the gospel path into sin and unbelief looks like for you. As you grow in your understanding of your own heart, the struggle that comes from within, as you grow in your understanding of what the enemy's attack looks like in your life, as you grow in your understanding of the awareness of the things in this world that draw you away from Jesus, it's then that the various facets of the gospel begin to shine with a different radiance, with a different beauty and brilliance. Let, let me do this. And, and this will not be comprehensive. In fact, for some of you, this will come across as very trite because it just doesn't go deep enough. And we just can't in this context And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But let me just throw out a number of struggles that we face in life and then put on display the facet of the gospel meant to speak into that struggle. First of all, for those who struggle with fear, with contempt, maybe you look at God and he just comes across to you as this angry curmudgeon in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts at the first sign of failure. The first sign that you, you don't measure up to his expectations. What does the gospel offer to those who fear? Well, the gospel declares that Jesus has saved us from God's wrath by absorbing the wrath of God in our place so that when, G, when God looks at us, he no longer sees a sinner deserving of wrath. Where we were once condemned, we are now forgiven. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the bearer of his wrath for our sins. Romans 5.9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Or one of my favorites, it's up on the screen, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you come into this room with this fear of God, it's Romans 8.1 that speaks to the heart. It's meant to be declared to, to the fearful heart in that moment. That's the facet of the gospel that's meant to shine for you. What about those who struggle with shame, defilement? Well, the gospel declares that Jesus has cleansed us from sin, including the shame and defilement associated not only with the sins that we have committed, but the sins that have been committed against us. So that where we were once corrupt, we are now made clean. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or one of my favorites, we named our oldest daughter based on this verse, Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you come into this room and you bring great shame into this place this morning, Isaiah 118 is meant to be declared to your fickle heart. What about those who struggle with guilt or rejection? What does the gospel offer? Well, the gospel declares that we as guilty sinners are declared righteous before a holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. Where we were once guilty, we are now accepted. We can now stand in the cosmic courtroom of God and be ushered into his presence forever. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Listen to the courtroom legal language here. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
If you come in this morning, you struggle with guilt before God. Know that if you're a Christian, your guilty record has been nailed through the wrists of Jesus Christ to his cross. What about those who struggle with loneliness, isolation? What does the gospel offer to those? Well, the gospel declares that we are no longer alienated. Rather, Jesus has made a way for us to become a part of a new family with God as our Father, surrounded by brothers and sisters in the faith. Where we were once separated, we are now deeply loved. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. How about Romans 8, 15 through 17? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's crazy, people. If you struggle to to wonder whether you're loved, you come into this place as a Christian this morning, know that, that you are declared a child of God, a child of the the cosmic creator who made all of this. And if children, then heirs, as if it weren't enough that we're children. (laughs) Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What about those who struggle with boredom, apathy? Maybe that's what you bring into this place this morning. Well, the gospel declares that Jesus has pulled us up off the ocean bottom and breathed life into our dead, lifeless souls. That, that whether you feel like it or not, you're a new creation. That where we were once dead, we are now alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That in the same way Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb and declared, Lazarus, come forth with this great booming declaration. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you're alive even when you don't feel like it. Ephesians 2 is meant to be preached to your apathetic heart in those moments. What about inadequacy? Failure? Maybe that's what you bring into this place this morning. Well, the gospel declares that Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness in our place as our federal head, gifting us a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that we can never manifest in and of ourselves by virtue of our own good works. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, 8 and 9, For his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In those moments where where you feel like a complete failure, know that you've been robed like the prodigal son in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When the father looks at you, he sees his beloved with whom he's well pleased. Not because you've pleased him, but because Jesus has on your behalf. What about addiction? What about powerlessness? What does the gospel have to say to those who maybe bring that into this room this morning? Well, the gospel declares that while we continue to be exposed to sin's influence, Jesus has freed us from sin's 
dominance. He has put the key in the shackles of sin and has released us. We have been rescued from bondage to slavery and sin. Where we were once captive, we have now been made free. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for himself, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Romans 6, critical chapter if you struggle with addiction and powerlessness. We know, Paul says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or perhaps my favorite, Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. For those who come in and struggle with this feeling of powerlessness in in the face of sin, Romans 6, 14 is meant to be declared to your heart. Sin will have no dominance over you. What about rude idolatry issues? What does the gospel have to say in the midst of our struggles with root idols? For those who struggle, maybe like me, with approval, with this this need to feel loved by anyone and everyone, the the cross speaks over you and I the greatest words of approval imaginable. Again, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. I, I think if I could preach that to my heart and believe that and breathe it like air, I think my life would be drastically different. I really do. And that's where God's at work in in me, particularly. What about control, security? If you're always grabbing at, especially in the midst of everything coming unraveled, those seasons and moments in life, what does the gospel offer? Well, the cross declares that God cares for you and wants to provide you with eternal security, safe in the arms of God forever. What about those who claw after comfort and freedom? Well, the cross affords you the ultimate freedom, freedom from the empty chase of self-exaltation, freedom from sin and self. What about those who struggle with clawing after power and status? Again, the cross affords you the most remarkable status in the universe. You're a declared child of God, a co-heir with Jesus Christ himself. When our hearts are faced with the anti-gospels of approval, Comfort, control, and power. We've got to be armed with the truth necessary to declare to our fickle hearts that Jesus really is enough. What about self-righteousness? Coming back to that issue. Self-loathing. What does the gospel have to say to those who find themselves in in either of those ditches, so to speak? Well, to the self-righteous, the gospel declares that you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you. And that's just something that you've got to come to terms with if that's your struggle. That there's nothing to be earned with respect to God's favor and love. Jesus did the earning for you. He didn't just do the heavy lifting and then leave a little bit for you to lift. He did all the lifting. That's what the gospel declares. So that we can stop trying to impress God and others. We are all far less impressive than we think we are. Can we just agree to that? That the, the rabbit hole of sin and depravity runs far deeper than we think it does. But... By God's grace, we are all incredibly loved and accepted in Christ. To the self-loathing, maybe you go, yeah, I get that. I get that the gospel declares that Jesus is so, or I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. I don't have any struggle with that. That's what I stare in the face constantly. You need to hear this. You need to hear that, yes, you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you, but you're so loved that he was glad to. 
that you're not the limitation on the power of Jesus' blood. Again, coming back to Isaiah 1.18. Let me declare that verse again. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let me say this. Your scarlet is not greater than Jesus' snow. You hear me? Are you a great sinner? Yes. Is Jesus a greater savior? Hallelujah. What about this idea? We talk about this from time to time of functional saviors. People or things that we, we turn to in the quest for meaning, for significance, for identity. People or things that we hope will take away the emptiness at last. I'd argue that most of the things that we put into this category are just surface level manifestations of things that are going on at a deeper uh, heart level at the root. That, that if your kids, just as an example, are your functional saviors. In other words, if you've taken your kids a good thing and you made them an ultimate thing in your life, you put them on the throne, so to speak. There's a reason that you're doing that. If money, which is a good thing, is an ultimate thing in your life, there's a reason at a heart level that that's true for you. It would be, it would be easy to say in, in a general way, maybe you've heard this before, that, that all those other saviors will fail you. And so thanks be to God for providing us with a, a savior in Jesus who will never fail us. And is that true? Yes, that's true. And if that's enough for you, you know, that's glorious. But some of you hear that and you go, that sounds a bit trite to me. If it does, it's highly likely that that's because it's only speaking to what's above the surface in your life. If you can get to the real heart issue and seek how the gospel speaks to the heart, it's far more likely that the beauty of the gospel will shine with a, with a different kind of radiance to it, so to speak. What about the battle with the devil? What, is, what does the gospel have to say in the midst of the challenge that we face uh, as Satan and his army of darkness attack us, try to prevent the roots from going deeper and deeper as it pertains to the gospel? Well, the gospel declares to us, we talk about this all throughout the Christmas season, that Jesus is the dragon slayer who delivered the death blow to the serpent. He is our victory over the powers of evil, namely Satan and his demons. And all authority has been given to Jesus. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That Satan is not walking around with a minor flesh wound. He's bleeding out as we speak, as we wait for Jesus to return to ultimately uh, bring about Satan's last final breath. But, but he does not have the final word. Jesus has the final word. The death blow has been delivered to the serpent. What about the world? What about the things that we face in the midst of the everyday that present challenges to our faith alongside of our Fickle hearts and, and the devil and his army. I mean, we could go a number of, of places with this, but I'll just give you one because I think we all can relate to this in some sense. This idea of affliction, suffering, those seasons that you go through in life where, where times are hard. What does the gospel have to say in the midst of those moments? And, and I don't want to trivialize that. If you're going through something hard, I don't want to make it seem as, as tried as just Here's your statement to believe. But, but there is something to be said about the gospel that declares that no matter what we go through, Jesus is with us in and through it all. Again, I said this 
during the Advent series that Jesus didn't just take on a killable body, but he surrounded himself with everything that makes this world sad. He knows what you're going through. He understands. You can go to him. He's not removed from our brokenness. I love Romans 8, the way Paul declares uh, these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are good words. That, that kind of beautiful truth will put to the test whether we really get the gospel or not, because it declares that the gospel is not that you get Jesus to give you what you really want. The gospel is that you get Jesus, period. I feel very inadequate this morning because I feel like there, there are so many nuanced things that are brought into this room that it would take several cups of coffee to unearth, to get to the heart of with respect to who you are, with respect to, to what those struggles look like for you in your life, with respect to how that particular facet of the gospel is, is meant to bring you hope in, in the midst of whatever you're going through. I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface of, of what the gospel offers us. And yet I hope that you see that while it is Jesus died for my sins, it's far more robust than that, that the gospel really is a multifaceted jewel, that these doctrines that flow from the cross of Christ are, are meant to offer us hope and peace in the midst of, of it all. We could spend years looking at all this stuff, and, and in fact, we will. I'll get to that in just a moment as to how all this plays out for us as a church, this unearthing of what makes us tick and how the gospel is meant to, to speak into that. But, but before we do that, <clears throat> let me just let me close by going back to a, a couple of personal examples that I shared last week with you. Uh, and, and let me attempt to connect the dots to the radiance of the gospel as it pertains to those examples. If you were here last week, maybe you remember I shared an example uh, of a struggle with uh, approval. That, that's a root idol that rears its ugly head. It, it's, it, it comes back. There's this sort of rhythmic nature to it for me. It's one of those that um, I envision might be a part of the fight to grow in holiness uh, for a long time in my life. I, I don't know if that's because my dad checked out when I was a little kid and, and I claw after the approval of other people because I didn't get it. I, I don't know what the root of that is, but I do know that it matters what people think about me, um, if I'm honest with you. And I, and I mentioned that that comes out in a number of ways. So as a seminary student, it came out in um, papers and exams needing to, to make a perfect score so that the professor would think well of me. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a church planting assessment um, process, and, and it matters deeply what these other church planting men of God think about me, so that the, the day that I got my assessment results and found out that I passed, one of the most glorious highs that I've ever experienced, and the day after, one of the most devastating lows that I've ever experienced, because I felt like there's nowhere else to claw my way upwards toward. Until I started stepping in the pulpit week in and week out and realized that these sermons can make a difference about what a person thinks about a pastor. 
And now all of a sudden the crafting of those sermons, you see how my fickle heart comes out to play as I'm, as I'm preparing week in and week out. What does the gospel declare that I need to hear in the midst of that struggle? Well, the, the gospel declares, going back to what we talked about earlier, that I'm God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Not because I've pleased him, but because Jesus has pleased him on my behalf. I am approved of perfectly in Christ. The greatest sermon in the world cannot enhance my identity, and the worst sermon in the world cannot condemn me. And listen, I don't need to hear that on Sunday. I need to hear that on a Monday morning during sermon prep. I need to hear that on a Wednesday morning during a preaching primer where I sit with other guys and work through the text that we're going to be preaching through as a multi-congregational church. And on and on I could go with that one. What, what about the battle with control, with security, that I mentioned last week that comes comes out to play, rears its ugly head with respect to finances in my life so that I find myself incessantly checking our bank account, looking to make sure that our quasi-Dave Ramsey envelope system is always up to date. Every receipt is put in so that we know where we are at any given moment. Despairing when an unexpected cost hits. Losing sleep in, in ways that I don't normally lose sleep in those moments, in those seasons. And I mentioned last week that what's going on under the surface there, if I'm honest, is that what's oftentimes most important to me is control. It's security. And I believe money can provide it when I'm not looking at Jesus. So going back to last week, if I stay in that, I'm done. I'm done for. I'm hopeless. What does the gospel offer me in the midst of that? This is what I wrote down this week. This is what I journaled. The gospel declares that the thought that I'm ultimately in control is delusional. Acknowledging that God is ultimately in control is an exercise in sanity for me. Not only is God in control of my story, but he's good. The cross of Jesus Christ proves that God cares about me. He's got me in the palm of his hand. Even if I lose everything, I gain Christ. He is my ultimate security. My heart needs to hear that. And not just once, often. For the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Every promise God has ever made, the certainty of every one of those is rooted in Jesus. I said this in week one of the series. I'll say it again. We all need the gospel. We can all stand to breathe a little more gospel air. Again, do you know yourself? Do you know what your unique need for the gospel looks like? Do those examples that I just shared sound weird or absurd to you because you've, you've never really gone down that kind of detailed path to know who you are and how the gospel is meant to speak into your life. And again, there's much I don't know about myself. The rabbit hole of depravity runs deeper than I know. The same is true for all of us. You know what that unique need for the gospel looks like. And by the way, that answer is ever-changing because the landscape of our lives is ever-changing. Our fickle hearts are ever-changing as we grow the tactics of the devil are ever-changing as he figures out that certain things don't work and he comes at us in different ways. And so I would say this, the Christian must be an ongoing student of himself or herself and the world in which he or she lives. That's a never-ending homework assignment. The other critical question is this, do you see the gospel for the multifaceted jewel that it is? Are you growing in an awareness and understanding of all the ways that the gospel shines? Thanks for listening. 
If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.